This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Welcome to the show. It is a Thursday. Sandy and Sean. I'm Sean Drotar. Sandy Clough on my left. Danny Bailey is in the booth. You want to interact with the show? Of course, uh, you most certainly can. Our caller text line is 303-831-1340. I always hate saying this because I think it's the most lazy intro to sports talk show ever, but got a lot to get to today. We do. We actually do. The Avs are in action. The Nuggets will wrap up their preseason. Of course, we have to talk about uh, the Broncos uh, joining us. Chris Thomason will pop in from the Denver Gazette and join us uh, in the spotlight there at 5 o'clock. But we'll start with the Avalanche home opener tonight in a highly anticipated season. They go ahead and start their first three games of the year on the road, all unbeaten, tie the Buffalo Sabres for the longest road regular season streak. Oddly, the Sabres record also uh, extends over two regular seasons. But for this team, they take on a Blackhawks team that is, let's face it, on ESPN because, one, the Avs are interesting, and two, Connor Bedard is interesting. Absolutely. And, and so that's uh, why that this is the national game. Connor Bedard on national TV, as they did on opening night. Uh, ESPN will take advantage of that, and well, they should. He seems to be an extraordinary young player, a phenom, as it were. And uh, the Blackhawks... It's interesting with the Avalanche and Blackhawks over the years. When the Blackhawks are dominant, winning three Stanley Cups in what? Five years, six years? Kind of like Golden State. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Golden State in the NBA. Uh, The Avs gave them more trouble than you would imagine that they would. Just because they were scrappy, and I'm sure the Blackhawks weren't raring to go every time they face the avalanche. And it's kind of flipped a little bit. In fact, the loss that I think triggered this recent run that we've been talking about, speaking of carrying over from last season Mm -hmm. to this season, a stretch now of 45 games in which the avalanche have gone 34, 7, and 4, began with a loss in Chicago to a team that was... Uh, all but tanking for Connor Bedard. And it yep. turned out <laughs> right. it sort of worked out that way. Uh, Kane was on the way out. Uh, Taves is kind of in a semi-retirement state. Uh, all their big guns uh, from the dynasty days are gone. And they have given the avalanche a little bit of difficulty. And they remain, now with the addition of Bedard, of course, a very scrappy team, kind of annoying to play against. They won in Toronto recently, Mm -hmm. and people, even in Toronto, uh, where a lot of bad things have happened, especially in the postseason over the years, they're a Stanley Cup contender. They're they're a good team. So uh, they've got a couple of wins under their belt, and this is the end of a very long season-starting road trip for the Chicago Blackhawks. Yeah, um, right. It's worth noting so that. It's a nice occasion. This will be their fifth road game to start. The, they'll be one of only a handful of teams after tonight that have played five games at all, let alone the Evs have, have played three. 
Uh, but it'll be all five on the road for the Blackhawks. Right. Uh, Bedard, second on the team and scoring tied for second with three points. He has a goal, two assists. Uh, Tyler Johnson, they're also three points, all goals as their goal scorer. And he's one of the scrappers. He is. And he's a good player. Uh, right now, you know, it's it's early, obviously, but the Blackhawks are, are sit at third. They're off to, I think, a decent start well, for as bad as they were last to, year there. To start with five on the road and you're yeah. two and two coming out of the first four, I think they'll take that. I think so, too. With one of those wins coming in Toronto which is, uh, as the Avs can tell you, always a difficult it's place to a play. tough place to play. And it's, it, a, tough it, place it's a tough to place to play, to play for, the, for the Maple Leafs and, and, when it comes well, to the playoffs. It is. <laughs> I mean, it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's tremendous pressure on the Toronto players, to be sure, but it, it's a tough place to play, I think, sometimes for visiting players because a lot of them are from the area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their family and friends often come to the games when they have uh, – their tickets distributed a lot go to family and friends, maybe more so in Toronto uh, uh, than in any other place. And sometimes I can be a little distracting uh, for the visiting team too. But a so, good start. I mean, they started with a win yeah. in, in they went in Pittsburgh. Yeah, uh, they beat Elwix Toronto as you pointed out. Uh, they yeah. lost three to one in Boston, but we know how good Boston is. Yes. And they lost to Montreal, which isn't very good. But they lost on the road. And they lost by one. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be, I think, a much improved Blackhawks team. I don't think they're quite in well, the I don't area think they're a you... last place team anymore, no, necessarily not in this division. And I don't think no. it's necessarily just Bedard either, no. although he's certainly going to be an impactful player. I don't think there's any question about that. He already has been for them. So that that's exciting. Late start, uh, 8.30 p.m. puck drop here locally. That's what you get sometimes. But uh, I think it'll be it's going to be a anticipated. You yeah. had a... We, had, we talked about it yesterday. You on uh, your social media account had an opportunity to talk a little bit about Alexander Georgiev. We mentioned this before. Uh, he's been the Avs' best player. Not McKinnon, so. not Randon, not McCarr. Not, mm-hmm. uh, not that any of them have been bad. No, but, be, been very, but Georgiev has and, been outstanding. And we talk about uh, McCarr, as we did yesterday, on a regular basis. That's the best defenseman Georgiev in hockey. Georgiev has been outstanding in all three games, and I would say brilliant in at least one of the three, um, certainly the other night. It, but, I thought yes, he was brilliant. Kraken. That yes. was his win. I agree. They were outshot. They were out hit. Logan they O'Connor said penalties. as much. Uh, players in the locker room after the game were acknowledging that the, the Avs were the second best team in the ice. That was your textbook. The other your goalie night. stole a and game for you. one Yeah, the goalie stole a game for and, you, and, and that's what he so does. It, that's what a top goaltender can do when called upon. And I, I thought there was a little bit of that in the opener. He was certainly outstanding um, against uh, the L.A. Kings. Now, outplaying Cam Talbot is something that a lot of goaltenders have done uh, over the years. But the Kings are a good team, and that was a that was a wide-open game. It was kind of the antithesis of certainly the game in San Jose mm-hmm. and even the one in Seattle the other night. It was wide open, back and forth, lots of shots. Lots of goals, and uh, Georgiev stood firm between the pipes, and the Avalanche got a, a clean win in regulation uh, against a pretty good team, a team that was certainly a playoff team last year. San Jose is terrible, but they had uh, a young goaltender play out of his mind, and the only shot that beat him was the one by McCarr that he couldn't see threw about four bodies in front of him in the last minute of the game. Which was shot number 50, right. by the way, out in the of game. 51 yeah. they had in the game. And then, of course, the other night, you know, 38-28 differential on shots. That isn't always illustrative of uh, the, the territorial advantage, but 
Seattle was definitely faster on pucks. Um, but he, here's the point I want to make here at the top of the program today about the Avalanche. And I think it was symbolized both by the fight that O'Connor got into on opening night mm-hmm. with Lafreriere yep. and the one he engaged in with Eberle uh, the other night. Now, Eberle's not a fighter. Eberle cheap-shotted Andrew Cogliano in Game 6 of the playoff series last year and basically broke his neck and the extremely painful injury and spent the summer basically rehabbing uh, from that injury. Eberle, by the and, way, was regretful of that, certainly did not mean was, injured. And he, in this case, he got called out and he... And he did he fight, and he's not a fighter. Uh, and O'Connor yeah, didn't was... necessarily have the edge on Lafarriere, but he uh, did have did on Everly. who's not a fighter uh, at all. But it showed a spirit that I haven't seen before. And again, I think in hockey terms, he won over, not that he had to, but he won over not only the players in the locker room who know what Logan O'Connor is made of, know the kind of player he is, the kind of person he is. But the telling comment to me came from Ross Colton, who fought Logan O'Connor when he was with Tampa Bay and said, I've lost enough fights to him to know that I'm glad I'm on his side. And he was exactly the guy to go after Everly. Colton's had four fights in his career, and two of them are against O'Connor. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, and, that's kind of Colton's mind. He didn't win either one, and he had great respect even before he came to the Avalanche for Logan O'Connor. But now, you, who, by the way, that's I was only way an assist from the Gordy Howe hat trick together. in that and Seattle game. Exactly he had the goal. Right. He had the fight. He just and didn't have the assist. You know the old story about the Gordy Howe hat trick is Gordy Howe himself only had two or three Gordy Howe hat tricks during <laughs> his entire career. Career, but. It, Gordy Howe had a reputation, certainly as a goal scorer, um, unselfish player, and a guy who did not need an enforcer playing alongside him. Right. Gordy was his own enforcer, and he was as tough and at times dirty as uh, uh, the rules would allow, and sometimes the rules didn't allow. We've told some Gordy Howe stories over the years, uh, the two of us have, uh, that uh, have been passed down. But it, uh, And listen, o- O'Connor is, is not that kind no. of player but if anybody was going to stand up for Cogliano it was probably going to be O'Connor who played with him last year Wood didn't play with him Tatar didn't play with him Colton didn't, uh, play, Colton with him. didn't play with him uh, that those are the third line guys and I don't think you want any of your top six forwards fighting no I, I, I generally speaking I don't think you want that you <laughs> at the risk of Injury, if if nothing else, you don't want your top six forwards fighting. So he was the guy to do it, and he did it, and he did it right away. Um, yeah, I believe the second shift of the game. Uh, clever calculations to put O'Connor on the ice because San Jose, uh, I'm sorry, Seattle gets to start their second line. They have the last change, and so they they're the second to uh, announce their starting lineup, and. You figure if you start your second line on the first shift, the first line is not far behind and probably out there <laughs> for the second shift. So uh, the Avs went with, uh, I believe, their top line to start, but then they got their fourth line out there uh, with actually uh, O'Connor and Cogliano both on the ice with Olofsson. And O'Connor took it upon himself in a way that Olofsson couldn't do. He wasn't 
with the Avalanche last year. Right. And O'Connor really was the guy to do it and, and did it. And I, I think it reflected a spirit on this team that uh, I think will hasten uh, whatever integration issues they may have with the new players and make everybody feel as if it were one unit were supportive of one another. Uh, guys know what they're supposed to do. I, I was re-watching the 30 for 30 uh, Belichick Saban uh, documentary last night. And, and the way they talked about uh, their coaching theories was fascinating to me. And one of them was every player has to know specifically what he's supposed to do. You know, the do your job sort of thing, right. which seems vague to a lot of people, but they define what that really meant. Do what you're told to do and you will never be asked to do things that you're not capable of doing. And Logan O'Connor fulfilled that in the game the other night. And I think it's emblematic of, of the way I think this team will come together. I think the three new guys on one line, I love that. I do too. I like that line a lot. <laughs> because a they're, lot. they're strangers and none of them have played with the Avalanche before this year, but you put them all together. And their strengths do dovetail. We've been talking about overlapping uh, strengths uh, or uh, the nugget philosophy right. not to have to avoid that, overlaps. To, to avoid the overlap. Uh, but I think the Avalanche have in kind of the same yeah. thing in mind when you've got Wood and Tatar and Colton and you have O'Connor and Cogliano on your fourth line. They're a penalty-killing combination that's probably as good as any penalty-killing forward combination the Avalanche couldn't put out there. And quite frankly, and lucky uh, number 13, the Avalanche 13 for 13, killing penalties with a shorthanded goal. A pleasant surprise. O'Connor. Uh, you mentioned him there, Frederick Olofsson, yep. who found who's Excellent. finding himself up there Excellent. immediately new to the team, a guy that hadn't really established himself regularly at the NHL level, popping up into that penalty kill. And, and played double-figure minutes the other night. Looking all good. the while like he absolutely belongs on that bottom line, on that checking line, on the penalty kill. Uh, they found one there. And you, you talk about O'Connor, and I thought a little bit about the Avalanche's first Stanley Cup team, and then we'll have to go back a little bit, obviously. And you may think of him as a player that wasn't really a third liner, but he was a third liner at the time. And I see similarities with Logan O'Connor to a Mike Ricci, a guy that was the, the scrappy, gritty guy, different body types. Ricci wasn't really a fight, but he didn't back down from anybody. And, and Ricci had a little more skill than yeah, O'Connor. Yeah, there's, yeah. but there, there's some differences in the style. But they're those guys that can do a little bit of everything. Teammates Teammates love love them. And if you're going to try to make that leap and you want to be a cup contender, you need guys like that. Blue guys. Blue guys. And and I see some similarities there between O'Connor and Ricci, who at that time was a third liner with the the top six. Remember, in in 22, Cogliano and and Helm Mm -hmm. and O'Connor playing on on the same line. And, you know, it, it could be a fourth line, but you know, they could get by with those guys uh, as a third line if they needed to. And, you know, they had Kadri uh, centering the second line and obviously McKinnon centering the first line. But you, ha- you had those four guys, Cogliano and Helm, uh, veterans 
and O'Connor, the young guy who plays five to ten years older than he is. Yeah, and that part is obviously a really good sign. Now, for the Avalanche, the thing that I find sort of curious thus far in the, in the early going, and that's what I wanted to ask you about, too, because it is a change. We know about the top pairing of, of Devontae's and Kale McCarr, the best defensive pairing in the league. The idea, though, by and large, of pairing Bowen Byram and Sam Gerrard, speaking yeah. of overlap, two guys that are a little more skaters, a little more offensively minded, Jack Johnson, Josh Manson, a little more physical. Are you surprised to see that pairing become sort of normalized over these first three games? And would you like to see it continue? Because I'll, I'll be honest, that's one of the few things that I question. I kind of look at it. I'm like, yeah. I don't know if I like the Byram Gerrard pairing. I, 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 I was fine when McCarr was hurt last year with Taves and Gerrard. I thought that worked well. I, I thought they complimented. Uh, but I just think you're giving, up, well. you're giving up too much size. I, yeah, I, 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 don't, I, I don't like it. I, I like the way Gerard is playing, whether it's with Byram or with Manson, Manson, Manson before, or yeah. Johnson or whomever. Um, I, I'm not in love with it. <laughs> I, I, I wish Byram would play better. And I think if Byram are playing better, they put Byram with Manson. And they seem to be a good pairing during the Stanley Cup run in 2022. But but Byron's got to play better. Uh, Manson, I think, can play a little better. But Manson played more than Byron did the other night, which is interesting yeah. to me because he's playing with Johnson. Um, they didn't do it in the first game all that much. No. But in the second, third games, they did. They You're have. exactly right. And that, that was the... Now, frankly, that was the pairing virtually throughout the game the other night. Mm-hmm. And uh, I agree with you. I'm not crazy about it. We'll see. I mean, but Byron Bednar, needs to play a little bit. He needs to play better. Bednar seems to be a little bit wanting to size up some teams here and there. We saw it in the game against Seattle. Uh, Valerian Nachushkin started on that top line with McKinnon and Randon after one period. Yeah, which decided, seemed a different idea, yeah, right? To start the well, more physical Against a guy really aggressive four-checking team. With your team, two top forwards. Which I, I, right. I get that conceptually but, but then I got. But two skaters, finesse guys. Yeah. As a defense but I wonder, tandem, seem to go against the grain. Is the idea then actually more about pairing Johnson and Manson? Is maybe that what he's thinking? That when he maybe. deploys that pairing, he would like a physical pairing to match up where both guys are, are yeah, more physical I, players? Johnson's more of a positional kind of... But he's uh, more physical than either Byram or Gerard. Who's much more comfortable with the Avalanche than he was with anybody else. Remember last year when they gave out the Stanley Cup rings, Chicago in... Jack Johnson was playing for Chicago. Right. Got a Stanley Cup ring as a member of the Blackhawks. And now this year, he'll be in the lineup, presumably tonight, with the Avalanche. Back, back at But a, no Stanley Cup rings. Uh, no, no. <laughs> not, from the, uh, not from the Blackhawks, to be sure. The Avs and Blackhawks will drop that puck at 8.30 tonight. You can catch that game at ESPN. Following that, Avs will be back in action. They'll be back at home on Saturday night uh, against the Hurricanes. That game will be on altitude. We'll talk a little bit about more about that tomorrow. The Denver Nuggets wrap up their preseason tonight against the L.A. Clippers in L.A. That part, not all that important, although I am curious about the injury list because the Nuggets had some very interesting injuries, or at least listed injuries, when they talked about the starters. And Calvin Booth walked back his comments that he made in the ringer earlier this week about MPJ. I'll say this. You generally don't walk back comments if you didn't think they were going to be a problem. We'll talk about it next on Mile High Sports.
Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. In the Nuggets' last preseason game, they lost to the Clippers in L.A. Nobody cares. None of the starters played. Not actually top six, including Christian Brown. Nobody played. But the injury list, David, David Adelman coaching the team, of course, in Michael right. Malone's absence. Uh, pretty funny stuff. I mean, how many of these do you have? I, I have a few myself. Aaron Gordon missed the DNP right shoulder. Uh, Michael Porter Jr., DMP, sprained left ankle. Okay, it's not sprained. I don't have that one. Uh, Nikola Jokic, DMP, lower back pain. Yeah, obviously. Jamal Murray, DNP, sprained left thumb. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's sure. had the hand yeah. issues. Ken, uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, right knee inflammation. Well, yeah, of course. Uh, over 40. It happens all the time. Christian Brown, left calf contusion. I mean, they might have well, yeah. well as put like owie, tummy ache, tummy yeah. ache. Yeah. Um, whatever. And I'm curious to see. If these are regular season games. I printed this out be because I'm curious to see if all these guys missed the game tonight with the same injuries. Because I have a feeling that maybe the Nuggets are messing with the NBA a little bit with this very silliness. Because you should just be allowed to say DNP preseason. It's the preseason. Nobody cares. That's what you should just say. Nobody DNP cares. preseason. So uh, don't expect to see the starters. Don't expect to see the Nuggets care if they win or lose. You're looking to just get out of there healthy. And uh, the, the game itself is unimportant. The game itself was unimportant last time out two, a couple right. days ago, sure. except for the comments made yeah. by GM Calvin Booth, who in the ringer talked about uh, Michael Porter Jr. thusly, quote, I knew you couldn't have two guys that couldn't guard. He's referring to Porter Jr. and then traded Bones Highland. And we couldn't have two guys that were young and kind of more me guys. Mike makes 30 million. He's one of the best shooters in the NBA. So Bones. There's no place for you. If I'm Michael Porter Jr., I would be offended by that. And well, according the to me guys, right. Uh, and according you know, to guys, uh, not one me guy and the other guy, you know, growing yeah. and maturing. My high sports reporter, Ryan, them together. Ryan Blackburn, who we had on yesterday said that, yeah, the word is the Porter Jr. is a little not out thrilled. of sorts uh, as, as he would be. No. Well, uh, he went on the broadcast in LA over he at did. ESPN two and said, obviously, Mike is a TV core game. piece of our program with his character and offensive and defensive prowess. Okay. But then gave this part, quote, under no circumstance would I approve or pardon me, under no circumstance would I make or approve of those kind of comments for public consumption. That's not my character as a person or executive. And I think it's an unfair characterization of Michael and Bones. I think that was unfair for those things to be put out there. Here's the difference. And I want to lay this out for you, Sandy. Okay. Hey, he didn't deny saying One, he didn't deny saying it, although he did point. It's an unfair characterization. Well, you made the characterization. You, you made and, and the rest of the interview, unless you actually said flat out it was off the record, and you didn't say that you told the writer it was off the record, uh, you don't walk things back unless you know you stepped in it a bit. But right. here, here's the thing that I think is kind of interesting. Let's compare this to Sean Payton, who, you know, complained and said Nathaniel Hackett perhaps had the worst head coaching job in history. Payton said that he had his analyst hat on from when, being, when he was on TV or whatever. But, but here's the thing, what Payton didn't do. He didn't take the comments back. No. And he didn't no. say they were off the record. No. No, no. He invited them. If if you read and, and, and if you're you not going to hear me say this by very Jared often. Bell, it, Jared Bell sits down and Peyton and says, if said, I got something for you. And Bell, Bell said, even oh, great, go right you ahead. Want, at one are point, Bell sure? even wrote and said, are you sure? Uh, and, yeah. I will. I will say this. And obviously, I thought that was a wildly unprofessional interview by Sean Payton. Not that he cares. But 
Peyton at least didn't try the old, oh, that was off the record, or oh, I didn't really mean it that way. Peyton at least said, yeah, I said it. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. And in Calvin Booth's case, he went the other way. Well, it's an unfair characterization that but that you, you yourself made. made. Oh, well, it wasn't meant for public consumption. Oh, well, <laughs> well uh, Mike is a core piece of our program with this character. And like, look. I, I know you have to walk it back because, unfortunately, when all systems are go for the Nuggets to defend their title, their GM, the guy that deserves a ton of credit for it, Absolutely. which we have consistently given all year long, is the guy that creates the problem. Right. That's right. a that's a frustrating way to start. And what you hope is that Calvin Booth, who's a very smart guy, we both think rather highly of him. Yes. You have to learn from this. You have to understand, look, you're the champs. People are going to hang on your every word in a way they didn't when you were the Denver Nuggets in every and they're year before look for now. for signs of division, yes. and you can't find it in the locker and you room. you can't give it to them, right, because the locker room you doesn't have it. You can't find it in the locker room. There's nothing in the locker so room that the suggests the least office. amount of jealousy and division. You can't create it. So, I mean, an I d- unforced error. I don't think it's the end of the world. I think no. that. No, it, it's not. Booth but is probably going to have to, if he hasn't already, talk to Porter, you know, whatever, uh, ne- have lunch. He needlessly offended a player. Now, it's one thing, as he, he did elsewhere in the piece. As he put it out, a $30 million his, a year guy. Okay. But when you say $30 million, that's a, that's a pejorative. You're, you're saying, well, he makes $30 it, it million, is. we had to keep it's him. It's also indicating that he's a big part of your team and you need him. You've decided because he's got that. Well, deal. he's already said he wouldn't have given Porter that kind of money. So when you take all the things he said all the about more reason Porter, for Porter to get into account, he's actually been consistently critical of Porter. And I'm I'm not sure I quite understand. I, I could understand before last year because right. when he said Porter had done nothing and that he probably wouldn't have given he being Booth wouldn't have given Porter the deal that Tim Connolly did. Um yeah, I think a lot of people felt that way. You've that never exactly been banging reasons, the drum for Michael no, Porter Jr. For either. For various reasons, some of them health-related, that, you know, several back surgeries for a kid in his early 20s, always problematic. Right. But he hadn't done anything at that point. So th- there was nothing especially controversial about it. But when the player seemed to make a concerted effort last year to play a little more unselfishly, accept the idea that the Nuggets had effectively six starters, but you can't play six guys at once. And at the end of some games in the regular season, hell, I remember one Sunday afternoon during the entire fourth quarter, Michael Malone forgot about him. Didn't put him back in a game. Mm -hmm. The Nuggets were playing Brooklyn, I think, at home and lost the game. And (laughs) Malone was asked about it afterwards, and he didn't say he forgot about Porter, but he did say, well, you know, it really was a team-wide breakdown. But, yeah, the guy you put on the bench from the third quarter, basically on through the end of the game until the final seconds when the game was gone, the guy you put on the bench was Porter. And I stuck up for Porter, as you did at that point, especially when Porter said after the game, hey, you know, no. No hard feelings. No, no hard feelings. I, I, I get it. I, I think Porter probably understood or somebody told him, you know, hey, it wasn't anything personal. 
I just forgot about you. That that happens sometimes. Sometimes. Because it was it was not supposed to be a close game, and it turned into a close game. And, you know. But in the back of his head, he kind of thought, I don't need him the rest of the game, and he but, just kind of shoot right, out right, the window. Right. But Mental and, 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 and in this case, I, I <laughs> there are very few things that have been said before Calvin Booth's remark. Very few things over the years with Michael Porter that have been said about him that I would say, boy, that was unfair, flat-out unfair. I thought the action of not playing him last year in the fourth quarter of that particular game, I thought that was unfair to kind of scapegoat him but because the Nuggets didn't play any defense and, as a team. And Porter handled it in a, and Porter in a mature was fashion, you hope. It. Right. Porter was professional about it. And so that was the closest thing to, to an action, not something that anybody said, but just an action that I thought, you know, it was probably scapegoating Porter was was not the thing to do. It was not the way to go. But this is a statement lumping him in with Bones Highland, however you feel about Bones Highland, uh, and saying, well, we had a couple of me guys and, and we're paying $130 million, so we can't really do much with him. But the other guy was expendable. There was no place. And I, I agree with that assessment in the sense that you couldn't play them both at the same time. But the one guy who was making more money was the guy who showed some humility. Yeah. He wasn't leaving the bench before a game ended. So I, I thought lumping them together like that. And the other things he said in, in, in the, piece that I didn't especially agree with, but they were pumping up his draft yeah. picks, his rookies. And Peyton Watson, and that's, that's maybe fine. a little too much. but Yeah, still, I, mean, I mean, Peyton again, Watson is not pick. better than Bruce Brown his in draft any respect. Still as but, well. But he made the pumping pick. Pumping up and the was, guys he picked. The coaching staff didn't like it. I bet there was opposition in the front office to the draft pick, too, and he was the one guy who advocated for Peyton Watson, so he's feeling his oats on that one, and then he starts comparing Hunter Tyson to a uh, younger Dirk version Nowitzki. of Dirk Nowitzki. And I mean, please, come on. Uh, but he's entitled to do a little crowing one, to get carried away in praise of uh, some of his rookies. That's fine. But knocking Porter, I, I thought that was that was a cheap shot. And let me take a just remind people, okay? Let's look at just the playoff run, in which Michael Porter Jr., by the way, in certain times had problems with the shot falling, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's look at this. Points per game in the playoffs. Michael Porter Jr. on the team is third. Now, you're going to find number one and number two are basically Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic and everything. Right. But Michael Porter Jr., third in scoring. Michael Porter Jr. in rebounding, second. Michael Porter Jr. in blocks, third. Michael Porter Jr. in assist-to-turnover ratio. And I get that he doesn't pass all that much, but the idea that he's, you know, that he's a mistake careless, player. Yeah. Dead when you're talking about the the, the percentage there, 3.4. 3.4 assists to every turnover. That's extraordinary. That is better really than good. Jokic or Murray right. in the playoffs. I'm not right. suggesting he's better, but I'm no, saying the no. idea that Michael he Porter Jr. just kind of hangs around mistakes. and only does take shots, that's not true. And He was and, second on the team in rebounds. He went after yeah. it in blocks. He he. I, I get it. The, the problem with Michael Porter Jr. now is it's tied to that number, even apparently with this GM, about what he makes. Yes. But... Yes. Is he the third best player on the team? I might argue no. that Aaron Gordon no. is. But is he the fourth? Yeah. Yeah, he is. And he's not that far away from being the third. And 
he is an important piece of the puzzle here, and there is still room for him to improve because right. we watched it happen only months ago. Well, yeah, I, and as I said yesterday during our conversation with uh, with, uh, with Ryan, Ryan yeah. uh, it wasn't like he was shooting three for 20. No. Now, three for eight, three for nine, four for 11, four for 12, yeah. But it wasn't like he, he was shooting at every opportunity and they had to sit him because he was taking bad shots that were almost as damaging as a turnover would be. That that wasn't the case. No, he didn't shoot a high percentage, especially in the finals. But he was doing other things and he wasn't as much of a liability on the defensive end of the court. In fact, I don't know that there was any situation in which you looked out on the floor during the finals and said, you know, you got to get it out. out. I agree. His man is scorching him and shouldn't and that, be. And that's important. I think it really is. And, and I think the point you made there should have a lot of value when you're talking about those games in the playoffs in which he was doing other things in order to help. And, and, and we look, you look at the game in, in which they won, right? And he had the, the bad shooting. He went one for six to start and three points that didn't work out in the, in the, the very final game. The final game. Yeah. He had 13 boards. Yeah. And, and he yeah. had, by the way, in the playoff run, double digit rebounds in games in every one of the series. Double-digit boards for a guy who supposedly just hangs up by the three-point line. No, he got better against the Lakers and the Heat. He had five double-digit rebound games. So he yeah. he was doing well, that's other an, things. Out of what, nine games? Yeah. Five of them double-digit boards. Okay. That's all right. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I that. Exactly. Technically speaking, and I know that you know, basketball is more positionless now. But essentially, he's a small forward, mm-hmm. and he's, in the last nine games, the four-game sweep of the Lakers in the conference finals and the NBA finals against the Heat, in five of the nine games, he had double figures and rebounds. That's not a me guy. There were five games in the playoff run that he was minus in the plus-minus, uh, but most of it's the okay. time it wasn't by a lot, and okay. he had four games in the playoffs in which he was plus 20 or more. So the the idea, I get it. Is Michael Porter Jr. a super-duper star? No. Is he not. indispensable? Is he indispensable? No. Also, no. no. But is he a valued starter on a championship-caliber team? He is, and a lot of people never get that. There are, are two guys, and I, I think a third in Gordon is, is, is underrated, especially the way he played last year. But there are two guys on the Nuggets who are indispensable, and we know who those right. two guys are. And it's not Aaron Gordon either. No. It's, it's Jokic no, and Murray. Jokic and Murray. They, they're the only that. two guys without whom they cannot win. I mean, they're just an average Western Conference team without either one. Forget about both. Yeah. Then, then you know, they're probably a lottery team. But they're a middle-of-the-pack Western Conference team with one or the other out. They can still win without anybody else. Now, if they have two, three, four injuries to rotation players. Right. Well, well, yeah, they're in trouble just like any other team in the league would be. But, you know, 
if 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 you're looking at two teams, I'm thinking about the two LA teams. Is Davis going to play 60 games this year? No. Is LeBron going to play 60 games this year? No. Is Kawhi Leonard going to play 60 games this year? No. Is Paul George going to play 60 games this year? The two Clipper stars, George and Leonard. No. None of those four guys, the two main stars, the Lakers, the two main stars, the Clippers, going to play 60 games. So they're not going to beat you out. Jokic and Murray will play. I hope not 82 games. You're right. But 70 to 75. Those other pairings won't. Uh, in in Phoenix, Durant, I get it, plays 40 minutes a game in the playoffs. But right. during the season, I, I'd be surprised if he played more than 32, 33 minutes. I know they don't have a great bench, but they're probably looking at it. Listen, give us home court advantage in the first round. Yeah, we'll call we'll, it good. We'll call it good. I agree. So if if the Suns are second, that's better than third, but not a lot better. The the distinction is between third and fourth. That there is quite a bit of a difference in your championship chances between finishing third and fourth. Obviously, most of the teams who win championships are one seeds or two seeds. Uh, the Heat and Lakers got to the conference finals as lower seeds last year. But that was last year. That usually doesn't happen. So if you're anywhere in the top three, and this applies to the Nuggets, it applies to the Suns, it applies to the Lakers, the Clippers, if you're in the top three, you're fine. And the Nuggets stars are younger yep, and have less of a recent injury history. I know Murray missed all that time with the ACL, but he hasn't had healthy all last year. It's not like Leonard who has four or five injuries. It seems every year, right? Or Davis for that. Or Davis who plays two weeks of great basketball. And as John Hollinger put it, then follows with two weeks where he plays like the tin man in the wizard of Oz. The nuggets will get going against those Lakers next Tuesday. When they start the season, the preseason comes to a thankful close this evening in LA, the Denver Broncos, I can't say it's make or break. It's not make or break if they beat the Packers or don't beat the Packers because they're not going to the playoffs. But the question is, given that, what would a win mean? Does it even mean thinking of the standings? Is it important for the Broncos? Otherwise, we'll talk about it next on Miley Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Let's get ahead of things and let's say in a week, a week from Sunday, the Denver Broncos will not beat the Kansas City Chiefs in Denver. Can we just let's just hypothetically take that for a given that the streak gets to 17. That means if they don't win against the Packers. Well, that those digits they'll stick around because that team will be one and seven. That is not where the Denver Broncos expected to be. Now, two and six looks better, a little bit. I don't know, but I, I guess know. I look at it and I think this win is extremely important for the Denver Broncos, and it has nothing to do with standings. Sean Payton since the loss in Kansas City, 
His tone has completely changed when it comes to the comments. He's not discouraged by the loss. He's been encouraged by the play. He's been talking players up. He's been uh, saying very, he does want to trade. Anybody. Very different guy than the guy that had a, that when they were losing games earlier in the year. He was more than happy to point out exactly whose fault it was. And now, right. now all of a sudden, seems like he wants to talk guys up. That tells me that there's a coach, at least you know, based on my history in my career when I've seen this happen. That's a coach that knows he's losing his locker room if yeah. he hasn't already. I, I, and he's trying to win it back. Point. Which tells me if they don't win this game on Sunday. Where do you go? The where next is the, two games against Kansas City and Buffalo after the bye. Where is the buy-in? I mean, how, how does this team not... Well, there's no, there, there's no buy-in right now. And I don't think a win Sunday is going to change that. It's not going to be any easier to trade the Suttons and the Judys of the world. Uh, Bill Barnwell had a kind of a think piece today on players from every team oh, yeah. who would bring multiple firsts, one first, whatever. And, you know, Bill Barnwell is someone who I tend to agree with about 95% of the time. But he has been so bullish in recent years on the Broncos. Yeah. He's he's bought into their uh, narrative hook, line, and sinker. And this has gone on for four or five years now, especially the last two, where he's had them in the playoffs each mm-hmm. of the last two years. So he's been dead wrong about that. But you know he, he thinks there's something there. But he said, as hard as I tried to look, other than Patrick Sertan, got the same conclusion nobody, we did. Nobody who will bring a first rounder. Nope. And he he mentioned Justin Simmons, and he made the exactly the same point that we made last week: wrong position and the wrong side of third. Although I still said the within, Broncos within a few weeks, I said the Broncos need to trade him. I've been saying free Justin no, Simmons. No, he was for a he, while, but but his point was. By the way, I not that they shouldn't trade him. The Denver Post today was free no, Justin no, Simmons. No, hey, no. people listen. But that wasn't his point. <laughs> his point was not that they shouldn't trade Justin Simmons. No, they won't get but a first. They won't get a first no. for him. Exactly what we've talked about. Ever going to get a first for Jerry Judy? There's certainly not. They won't even get a second. Now, maybe not even a third for Jerry Judy, who's viewed as a cancer by most teams who are paying any attention around the NFL. Uh, Cortland Sutton's not a cancer, but you're looking at, I I, I was uh, just poking around today, uh, and I know Puka Nakua came out of nowhere, what, fourth round pick? I think that's right. I think that's that's right. right. Yeah. Uh, He's he's on a four-year deal for $4.1 million. And I'm thinking he's already produced, even if now he gets supplanted by Cooper Cup as the number one wide receiver now that Cup is healthy. He is on pace to catch, I don't know, 65, 70 passes for maybe not 1,000 yards anymore, but maybe 850, 900, okay? Those are better numbers than Cortland Sutton, who makes $18 million a year. Right. This guy makes one-eighteenth of what Cortland Sutton makes, and he's more productive than Cortland Sutton. There is no way you can justify 
paying Cortland Sutton that kind of money. And I think that makes him difficult to trade more so than his attitude. With Judy, it's the reverse. It's, it's his attitude. Uh, he, he's not putting out during the games. And it's his attitude more than it is his production. Although uh, I also looked this up today. Uh, Jerry Judy currently is number 60 in the NFL among receivers in uh, average yards per catch at 11.1. He is number 87 in catch percentage. That's targets versus passes actually caught. Number 87, number 72 with 20 receptions. Cortland Sutton is number 63 in yards per catch at 11.0. Number 42 with 25 catches and number 98 in catch percentage. These are your two top receivers. The log jam that Coach Payton says is keeping Marvin Mims off the field because, I mean, how could Marvin Mims be expected to outplay Jerry Judy, who is number 87 in catch percentage versus times targeted, and the guy who in the same category, Cortland Sutton is number 98. I mean, how can you? I mean, I can certainly see Did where they the make log a, jam comes. 11 personnel illegal this year, and I didn't get the memo? I mean, you, you can still run three wide, can't you? I'm not saying Marvin Mims is great. I'm saying among this sorry lot of wide receivers, he's the best one they've got. Thus that far, is damning with the faintest of praise. But for a coach, he's averaging more than someone double. who appears to be, uh, you know, a fairly well-established winning coach over the years, known for to offense. say something that stupid. That well, he can't get on the field. There's a log jam at that position. Jerry Judy and they, Cortland Sutton. They have Sutton. the worst wide receiving group in the sport. You just gave the numbers. Those two guys combined average 22.1 yards per catch. If you were to add it, Marvin Mims is averaging 24.6. Now I know that's not sustainable, but it's enough that you'd think and on he's an offense 10 that's not good on 12 targets. You'd be curious to see more. Yeah. Right. Uh, at this point, given the given the numbers, given the production, you would actually be justified statistically, if you really only wanted to play two wide receivers, to play Mims and Brandon Johnson, who has 15.3 per catch better. and three touchdowns. They've both been better than Judy and Sutton. But after that, the next wide receiver, when it comes to catches for the quote-unquote logjam, is Lil Jordan Humphrey with four, and then the next guy. Well, then they release him last week, and then they brought him back. And then back. they brought him back. And then the next wide receiver and catches is nobody. You, me, everyone listening, you have the same number of catches as the Broncos' beyond. number six wide receiver beyond little Jordan Humphrey. There's no log jam. You don't even have enough guys. And, and that part of it, when you're talking about this Broncos idea and getting a rebuild, it, it it's very, very difficult because you're trying to figure out how this team's going to get things right. But they can't get picks. They don't have picks. Right. And the players they have aren't nearly as good as most people think. Tell me if this makes sense to you. This is something and now your coach may very well have lost the room. Right. Trades. On the subject of trades, we're talking a lot about trades, possible trades. Trades aren't about talent. 
which is good news for the Broncos, I guess. <laughs> but about leverage. Well, the Broncos have no leverage either. No. Now, he acknowledges you need talent to have leverage, and the Broncos don't have any talent. But there are three things that come into play, positional value, age, and contracts. Well, Judy's contract is okay. He can live with it, but he's not producing. And in a league where there are a ton of good wide receivers, he's barely in the top 100. He's not in the top 60. We know that in any category among wide receivers, among receivers generally. So you got positional value, age, and contracts. Well, age is not a problem. It's it's basically the Broncos' problem is positional value, contracts, and lack of talent. Well, Maybe in that order. Otherwise, they're in great shape. We'll yeah. have an opportunity to talk more about all of this with the Broncos with Chris Thomas of the Denver Gazette, who will join us next in the spotlight on My Life Sports.